Welcome, welcome everyone to the Simon Dan podcast, the place where science and conspiracy collide. We're on episode 15. Um, I can't quite believe we're 15 episodes in, but unfortunately, Katz can't make it again. He is again absent. Uh, I'm not very, no, I'm joking. Oh, he's fine. He's, he's doing real life stuff. Um, he's doing his actual job. So uh, what we do is we get our guest on uh, on ASAP. So joining us this, this week is a PhD coral reef scientist working out of the Global Change Institute in Queensland, scuba instructor and fellow Brit, Emma Kennedy. Welcome and thank you for joining us. You okay? Yeah. Hi, Dan. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, everybody. That's okay. A pleasure to have you on. Um, so how's it going with the pandemic over there, actually? Because it's, it's uh, quite good in Australia, isn't it? Yeah, we've been really lucky, actually. Like, I think our total number of, um, like, infections and deaths are less than some days in the UK over wow. the whole year. So, and particularly up here in Queensland, we really haven't seen many cases. So, we're feeling very lucky. Yeah, I bet. Because you're, you're, I expect you're abreast of all the stuff going over here, aren't you? Because you're, you're from here originally, aren't you? My family all from London, yeah. yeah, so they're all locked down at the moment, so I'm really feeling for all of you guys. I wish I could just, yeah, like whisk you away for a yeah. day and take you to the reef, just oh, have yeah. a day off, <laughs> forget about yeah. it all. None, none of that for the moment. <laughs> no, but the end's in sight, right? The vaccination yes, program is amazing yeah. over there, like super efficient. Yeah, yeah we have done yeah, one Yeah, you guys fun. are going through the worst of it. Yeah. Um, so Emma, you're a, a coral reef scientist, but can you tell us a bit about what your job involves day to day? Yeah, so so I'm an ecologist, which um, ecology is the study of plants and animals and kind of how they interact with each other and also the environment. And because I'm a coral reef specialist, the animals and plants I'm interested in are mainly corals sure. <laughs> and seaweeds and fish. So kind of who they are, like where they are, what they're all doing. Um, how they're all interacting with each other. And then I'm kind of interested in how they interact with the environment as well. So like uh, like the quality of the seawater, the temperature of it, and just kind of working out how changes in the seawater affect all of those organisms and how they're interacting. And so it's a bit like being a detective and to like to do that, it means I have to spend um, like a lot of time in the water. So, I mean, ecologists do lots of different things. Some of them make models to simulate how all these animals interact. Um, but I'm a field ecologist, which means I'll spend um, maybe up to six months a year, um, like on the ocean, in the ocean, just making really detailed observations about animals and plants under there and how they're behaving and changing. And then when I'm not scuba diving, I'll be back in the office and looking for patterns in the data to try and understand what's happening and why. Cool. Sounds awesome. I mean, you just got back from a trip, haven't you? Um, monitoring the coral reef. What did you, what did you do there? Yeah, so uh, I was working for the Australian Institute of Marine Science, which has one of the best and longest running monitoring programs on the planet. But they're focused on monitoring reefs, mainly on the Great Barrier Reef. Um, so for over 30 years, they've had um, teams of scientists go out and return to the same reefs every single year to look at what's been like happening and what's changing. Um and so we pick up things like new threats to the reef, like coral uh, starfish that eat the corals, coral disease, um, and look at how the a lot of the Great Barrier Reef is in national parks. So look how different zones of the national parks are affecting like the health 
of the reef. So yeah, it was really fun to be out there in the field. We do um, one of the monitoring techniques we use, the survey techniques is called manta towing, where you get dragged on a rope behind a boat over kilometers and kilometers of reef so you can look out for like any big changes, which is oh, cool. a really, really fun way to see lots of reef. How fast do you go when you do <laughs> you that? You feel a little bit like shark bait. Yeah, how fast do you go? Uh, like no faster than about two knots. So it's oh, okay. not super fast when you're on the boat, yeah. but like when you're getting dragged behind, it's a bit like wakeboarding. You want to cover oh, okay. a lot of, um, a lot of area, like in a, in a pretty fast, in a pretty fast time. So it feels pretty fast when you're getting dragged along behind. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Um, I, when I, whenever I watch the, the programs here at home, like the David Attenborough stuff like that, I, I always love the, um, the episodes involving the shallow seas and the corals and stuff like that. Um, given they're such enormous organisms, what's your take on how important they are for the local ecosystem as a whole? That's a really good question. I think um, oh, one thing to wrap your head around is like reefs themselves aren't organisms as such, but they're obviously created like organisms yeah. by organisms, just like trees make like wood. Sure, yeah. Um, so they create stony, stony skeletal structures, but they grow enormous. Like you're right, completely like over thousands of years, they'll build these structures that are like like bigger than cities. And, and so those cities, of course, are really important because they create like a habitat for lots of other organisms. So worms, yeah. fish, crabs, lobsters. Um, and so you'll need the coral um, to keep creating these structures in the same way as you need trees to create habitat for animals as well. Like without, yeah, they're completely, yeah, they're completely important without, without them being, being there and being able to create that structure. Um, you wouldn't have all that biology, but they're also not just important from a biological perspective, but also from a human one. So um, we know that like the reefs end up generating lots of sand as well, which replenishes sandy beaches oh, wow. and the reefs help protect coastlines as well and keep them healthy. So big storms that are coming in and huge tidal waves get dissipated if they hit a reef before they hit your, um, your village. So in the Philippines, we know there's about 12 million people's homes that are directly protected by having reefs there. And then of course they support huge amounts of fish as well. And there's lots of people worldwide that actually rely on those fish like here in australia the reef's really really important for tourism income for um australians here in queensland as well and so there's an estimated i think it's like half a billion people 500 million people that rely directly on coral reefs for like either their food or their job and so the loss of reefs isn't really just a biological like catastrophe it's kind of like a looming humanitarian crisis as well which is what people don't often think about the kind of human element of how important reefs are no they don't at all um like i was going to say um is it are they good indicators of climate change coral reefs like yeah because they're affected so much yeah yeah they're often they're often said to be what do they call it like the canary in the coal mine yes, yeah, and that yeah. the corals themselves are pretty sensitive to temperature sure. and so they've been a pretty good indicator of ch- like of changing seawater temperatures def- yeah definitely yeah um, I mean I'm often saddened by the, the the pictures of the bleaching and things like that um is is that is that an irreversible thing or can can reefs cover recover from that 
I mean, do you want to explain a bit about what it is first and then if, if they can or not? Yeah, no, I, yeah, I'm really sorry to hear that because I totally feel for you. It's really sad to see, especially because coral reefs are so kind of vibrant and, and colorful. Yeah. And so coral bleaching is when the corals suddenly all go white and they basically go like that when they're really stressed. And it's sometimes like most of the time it's to do with like a big change in temperature in the water yeah. that they're living in. Pollution too can make them bleach and they're basically losing the color from their like skin, from their tissues. Um, and the color in there is caused by like tiny, tiny microscopic algae that they have like buried inside of their tissues. So uh, they're one of the only animals that will photosynthesize because they have this symbiotic relationship with the algae inside them. And it's a really clever trick because they use these algae to harvest lots of energy from the sun and help them grow. And so if the algae leave they lose this kind of like lovely golden brown color that they have and they look white because you can see the skeleton underneath um they're still actually alive at that point but if the algae don't return over a period of like days to weeks the corals basically starve starve to death and then eventually the reef will go from all white to kind of like brown so the skeletons eventually just like start to rot and everything rots and goes this disgusting brown color so it looks quite spectacular when it's all white and they can sometimes bleach and then recover if the temperature if you don't have a heat wave that lasts too long if it's just for a few days okay but it's kind of like prolonged heat waves that last for weeks which tends to knock out a lot of corals um and then your question about them is like whether it's irreversible like long term so if if the corals like don't get their algae back and they go on to die and start to rot i guess the best way to think of it is a little bit like a forest fire. So a forest fire passing okay. through a forest will totally destroy the forest and it'll look absolutely horrible. Um, and the forest can recover, but to look like it did before, it might take kind of five to 15 years for all the trees to regrow. And wow. it's pretty much exactly the same for a reef, anything between kind of five and 20 years for that reef to start to replenish. The only problem is really with that recovery as if, you know, if fires continue to keep sweeping through yeah. a forest and it can never get a chance to reestablish. And it's the same with the, with the reefs. Like they need that five to 15 years to remain cool. And if you had another big heat wave, then the young corals that are starting to come back and like reseed that reef would be impacted and the reef wouldn't get a chance to recover. And that's kind of what we're starting to see now, which is quite scary. Yeah. Um, it's really interesting actually um, with that, uh, kind of connection with the with the forest it's a good way of kind of putting it so that people can understand it um am i right in saying that uh with the where you mentioned about the heat waves the longer heat waves uh the the climate change isn't the fact that it's just getting warmer and and that's what's going on it's more like these these heat waves are coming more uh they're coming more often and they're longer and that's the issue yeah, absolutely. So we're, we're like, yeah, I think the thing that people sometimes struggle to wrap their head around with climate change is it's not this sort of really slow, like incremental, yeah. like change. You're just suddenly seeing like, you know, crazy weird weather events or more heat waves or more prolonged heat waves in, in areas. And that doesn't really give like the corals a lot of time to, to adjust. They basically just kind of get 
get cooked. But yeah, yeah, so we had a huge one in 2016, which really did a lot of damage to the to the Great Barrier Reef. And I think it was like the hottest year on record in Australia that year. And the ocean was also really, really warm. So yeah, not, not pleasant for anybody. Has, has that been the worst one recently, that 2016 one? Yeah, so 2016 was like incredibly severe because the heat was like high and it was like for a very prolonged time okay. and it really damaged particularly large sectors of the northern part of the Great Barrier Reef. But what was really scary for scientists is um, we hadn't seen, ever seen before two heat waves in a row. And what we saw in 2017 was the heat come back again and that was yeah that was scary to see because previously like the last mass bleaching events had been a few years in between each one which allowed stuff to kind of start to recover so yeah 2016 was a really severe one 2017 affected more the sort of central part of the great barrier reef and then we actually last year around exactly this time last year just when covid was kind of kicking off we saw another one, so March 2020, and that really sadly affected the southern part of the reef that okay. had managed to escape the the first two. And it was really frustrating because we were starting to get locked down, and so we were all wanted to get out to our reefs and check on them and see how they were doing. And we weren't really we weren't really able to at the time. We we're just trying to work out what the damage was now that yeah. we're allowed to go back out on field work. So, so when you're out in the field, then have you have you ever come across like some large area of of destruction because of that? Yeah, so I took a team up to the far northern section of the reef just after 2016, like to survey the damage. So we were going up, not when it was all looking really spectacular and white. We were going up to see, like, after that really like hot period, how much had survived and okay. like managed to go back to colors, or how much had started to rot. And at the time, we were using these really cool underwater kind of scooters. So. Uh, you know the Google Street View cameras? Oh, yeah. That, like, drive around. Yeah, so they help, uh, Google helped develop um, with the University of Queensland the surveys called the CV survey. It's kind of like an underwater scooter so that oh, cool. we could survey much larger areas than yeah. you normally can on scuba, so, like, a kilometre, a couple of kilometres at a time. And so we did this big kind of, it almost felt like a motorbike road trip, like, right up the northern section of the Great Barrier Reef to assess the damage and it was really tough because there's a team of five of us and every day it was just like kilometers and kilometers of just really brown like grim looking reef it just kind of looked like car park it didn't look like how you think a reef should look and it was really hard to keep everybody's spirits up on the boat and it was just the scale of it was like very very large so the Great Barrier Reef is bigger than the UK or about the same size as the UK. And you can just imagine driving for days and days and days and just seeing kind of scorched country. It was just, it got you down after a while. It was yeah, yeah scary to kind of get, yeah, get your head around the scale of it. Um, one of the things I noticed from our original email exchange was you had a footnote on there, which had the current atmospheric carbon and how it's changed month from month. Um, is that a fluctuation throughout the year or is it, is that a constant slow rise, that atmospheric carbon? Oh, that's so cool that you noticed yeah, that. Yeah. I said that because, like, yeah, it's just hard to get a sense of, like, climate change can be quite hard to get your, your head around. Yeah. And get a sense of what's happening to our planet, like a kind of, like a kind of weather report. So 
um, in Hawaii, there's this big old volcano called Mauna Loa. And on the top, they've got an observatory where they measure atmospheric carbon dioxide. And I think they've been doing it since the 1950s, like mm-hmm. on a daily basis. Um, and so that's a really good question about the fluctuation. You're completely right. Um, you can go and Google Mauna Loa, like observation CO2, and you should be able to find the site. And if you go there, you'll see that the um, carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere follow this kind of zigzaggy line because it carbon dioxide does fluctuate through okay. the year because you have these big seasonal cycles mainly driven by like plant growth the plants you know pulling co2 out of the atmosphere through photosynthesis and a lot dissolves in water as well but oceans as well as absorbing lots release lots as well it doesn't stay there permanently so there's this kind of flux all the time then like living organisms are respiring all the time even us we're just breathing out carbon dioxide all the time i don't think we're having that much of a big impact but soils and things like that with all the biomass in there and so you do see these kind of annual fluxes i think it's kind of like higher in in kind of springtime in the northern hemisphere and then lower um in september um but then on top of that zigzaggy line if you look at the overall trend if you kind of zoom right back out and see what's been happening between 1950s and today you'll see just this really steep increase but you're right it's not it's not steady throughout the year and I guess that's what my job is as kind of an ecologist is like looking at those overall big trends in patterns and not getting confused by all the little like noise going on yeah 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 definitely oh it's it's, I mean it's uh, it's really interesting the whole climate change debate I mean Cats and I, Cats, who normally does the co-hosting with me, we, we uh, as you know, we we spend our time on YouTube trying to debunk uh, conspiracy theories and, and things like that using science. Um, it, climate change isn't something we've really touched on yet, either of us. Are there any serious climate change deniers out there in the world of YouTube who are quite big? Or do you know of any? I think you're probably you're the expert here. I think you probably know more about them. It's um, it's funny because I think like in my little world of coral reef science and the science community that I'm kind of interacting with on a daily basis, for most of us, like it, like it, there hasn't even really been any question about yeah. whether it's happening or not. For over thirty years, we've become much more focused on okay, like what are we gonna do about it what are the solutions and like on a daily basis in like our working lives that's what we're thinking about so we're sometimes like a bit out of touch I think scientists with like how much confusion there is there is out there like I think I've not seen you debunking some pretty crazy (laughs) theories out there but I do on the other hand I do think that the majority of people out there are pretty smart and like do understand climate change and can see things happening like in their own backyards and their own cities so there was a poll I think just a month ago of about 1.2 million people it was run by Oxford University um, from across 50 countries and it showed about 80% of people didn't just accept the science on climate change but they were actually really concerned about climate change and wanted to see some action to tackle it and so I think yeah perhaps 10 years ago it was I don't know more acceptable to air those kind of beliefs and I'm sure there are still um, people like mischievous people out there and troublemakers spreading misinformation and yeah. I guess new ideas sometimes do take time to to take root but 
yeah, I defer to you though. You're the expert oh, may- on who's out there <laughs> spreading misinformation. <laughs> Maybe it's because I because of the world I'm in, and I I uh, I see the, a lot of people who are anti science um, and just want to go against the grain of everything that that science says. Um, and but like I said, we haven't really looked at, at climate change. I know. So if we went looking for these people, I'm sure we'd find a huge amount on YouTube. Um, but I, I still, it is quite a touchy subject, and that's again maybe because I, of the people that visit my channel or whatever. Um, so you haven't had any experience at all with any with any people who aren't convinced it's real. No, you you're completely right. Like I definitely have, like from like even people in my own family to oh, wow. like you'll jump in Uber and have a debate with an Uber oh, cool. driver <laughs> over it. And I think here in Australia, you talk about, I mean, you were talking about crazy YouTubers, but um, like some of our Australian politicians have some quite like out there views. And I think that's the thing that's really scary when your leadership are kind of buying into some of these quite wacky ideas. So yeah. Uh, actually our own prime minister scott morrison four years ago while he was treasurer before he became prime minister brought a lump of coal into parliament um and like flung it around and was kind of like there's nothing to be scared of and yeah like i think that's the kind of thing that's that's scary when it's people in positions of power that like really don't understand the science or why it's important and yeah, I just I find it crazy because I wouldn't ever tell my doctor what's wrong with me or try and explain to a lawyer about law and all we're trying yeah. to do is share our science and explain what's going on. Um, but yeah, I guess it's hard to know as a scientist. We're so busy trying to capture information and understand the trends and like work on really good state of the art science. It's like how much time do we have to try and focus on bringing some of these people along with us. I used to think, and there's almost a little bit of a debate within our coral reef science that came up maybe about eight or 10 years ago when the reefs really all started dying. And, you know, the old school members of the scientific community are really like, well, it's not our job to go out there and advocate and tell people about it. Our job is to keep our like heads down and be really objective and just collect data and share it and people can make up their own minds. But actually when the ecosystem that you love is disappearing, I think the younger generation of scientists coming through are like, well, actually communicating our science and how it works and what it means is important because you need to bring everybody along with you. Because if people don't understand what's happening and it's really scary and it's going to affect people's lives, that's our responsibility to go out there and tell people about it. Yeah. Um, it's funny you said about that poll. Actually, uh, last week we had uh, a, a guy on who is like a, sci- a, a space. Um, he writes space newsletters and he, he broadcasts space news and stuff like that. And I brought up a poll with him about um, what the American public, uh, what they think that space travel should be used for in the future. And going to Mars and going to Moon were at the bottom of the list. And funny enough, oh, yeah. funny enough. Uh, studying the climate was i think first or second so using our our space technologies to study climate and make sure everything's okay on that front was first or second which i think was quite admirable yeah definitely i think i think it's because people care 
Yeah. And it's like, I think, you know, especially with COVID, like a lot of people, like it's just made them realize what's important in their lives. And for a lot of people, nature and green spaces and having like a, like a healthy, unpolluted environment to like move around in is, was important. And we had those horrible bushfires last year in yeah. Australia. I don't know if you saw that, that people losing yes. their homes. We've had huge droughts over here. So it's really starting to affect you know, people's livelihoods and like, and lives. And yeah, our neighbors in the Pacific are all worried about like rising sea levels. So no, it's get, yeah, it's, but, it's, oh, yeah, I think it's really the, the, yeah, the global consciousness is something that's really, and that's reflected in things like the Paris climate agreement, yes, right? That it's yeah, just like absolutely. most governments are like, this is a problem. We need to collaborate and figure a way forward for us all. Um, it's funny you mentioned again the your the, one of the uh, your the prime minister in Australia who came into the into the um, parliament. One of the funniest and yet equally disturbing things I've ever seen was a congressman in America taking a snowball into the House of Representatives to show that climate change isn't happening. Um, oh, is, just... is that the craziest thing you've seen? <laughs> What's that? Is that the craziest thing you've seen? Someone something doing something like that? I couldn't believe it personally. Yeah, I th- yeah, I think stuff like that is yeah, it's like it's pretty, it's pretty wacky, hey. It's like yeah, I don't know. It's, it's kind it, of farcical. I know. It's like in Texas recently they had some really bad snow in Texas, um, and you know pe- people apparently, I mean I d- I don't know how real this is, but apparently they're trying to burn the snow to show that it's fake. Oh, you're joking. Yeah, I mean, no, I'm, that's real. Oh, yeah, no, that's real. Yeah, that's really, it's like, it's half funny and half, I know. like, it's sad, just isn't really, it? It is yeah. really sad. Yeah, I'm, a little bit sad. Yeah, yeah. And I guess that's, a, I mean, maybe that is another job for the scientists to communicate better because, of course, you know, we call it planetary warming and the whole planet is getting warmer, but the consequences of the warming doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be getting hotter exactly. where you are. Yeah. I think that's the thing that's scary. Like, we've had a lot of flooding events like here up in like north queensland where i live and like a lot of cyclones as well and you know these huge crazy snowstorms all of these like odd weather events all linked to changing um yeah changing patterns yeah but yeah just yeah understanding that i guess it, it can be tricky and it's yeah it's about just keep chatting to each other and i think that's why what you're doing is so exciting and so cool to just actually get to the bottom of the science and ask those kind of questions and talk to people about it and keep us all talking and keep us on our toes because that's the only way that we're going to just communicating well is going to be the only way that we're going to like all come together around this and we kind of need everybody to be on board to make these really big changes yeah definitely we need we need to we had a good chat with uh with professor jim al-khalili about it uh about um uh, trying to improve the the general scientific understanding am- amongst the general public uh especially with like recently with things like the vaccine and uh because it was brought out so quickly people were doubting it and things like that but obviously if you look into it and and it's quite quite plausible yeah yes but it's a lot to do with like journalistic integrity as well right if there's oh, yeah. like media that are not telling the stories properly or putting out misinformation like i can understand why it gets really confusing for people about like you know who's telling the truth and who's not it's like fig- like figuring yeah figuring that out yeah it's tricky completely agree um, but talking of telling the truth it's time for guess the conspiracy okay 
So this is the part of the show where Kat, normally Katz is with me and we, we, uh, we've both come up with a fake conspiracy theory. So it's one that, that, that both Katz and I have fabricated. And uh, we're going to try and get you to pick out of three one conspiracy that is real in that people actually believe it and out of the two that, that Katz and I have, have made up. Okay. Okay, I'm super gullible, so I reckon I'm going to be terrible oh, at it. Okay, Go. well, yeah. it's, cur- it's currently 8-4 to, to me and Kat, so the guests have, have only got four <laughs> points, so you, you've got some pressure here to put it back for the guests. Right, here we go. So, number one, uh, when the NHS prescribes exercise to the elderly, it is a deliberately done so to induce a heart attack to control the population. That's the first conspiracy. <sighs> Number two, uh, global warming will be solved when we find Earth's secret thermostat, which is hidden at the entrance to a secret cave system in the North Pole. That's conspiracy number two. And number three, birds are nothing more than surveillance devices for an alien race. Oh, I love it. I love the birds one. That's that's hilarious. So which one is real? Which one is real in that people actually believe it? In that people believe Mm. The other two. They're also out there. They are. Pretty much. And you've made up two of them. Yes, we have. I wish the thermostat one was true. Wouldn't that be easy? Just if we oh, should, yeah. all we had to do was find the thermostat and everything was going to be okay and my beautiful reefs were going <laughs> to be okay. I'm going to go. I really like the third one. I'm going to go for a number number three. I reckon, I don't know, those birds, they're suspicious. Okay. Like, so you're, yeah, go, you're, going for the, you're going for the birds are... I think more than surveillance devices for an alien right? Yeah, I reckon that's what those birds are up to. Okay, here we go. Definitely. Definitely. Well done. You've done it. You've done it. You've you've correctly guessed the real conspiracy. That is the real conspiracy theory that people believe. Please tell me where did that originate from? Is that a is that in the UK? Is that, uh, the, I think the, the more I've seen are ones in the US for people that believe that sort of thing. But, you know, there's yeah. it's like flat earthers. There's, there's conspiracy theorists everywhere. Um, I think, hang on a sec, I went through a whole episode without talking about flat earth. That's incredible. Um, <laughs> uh, the NHS one was, was one that Kat's made up and I made up the one about global warming. Um, I, 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 it was a play on the hollow. There's a, do you know about the hollow earth theory? No, there's, tell me. So the hollow earth theory is that there are there's two like holes in the poles which are hidden, uh, which is a way to get inside the hollow earth. Um, so it's kind of a play on that one. That's brilliant. Yeah, not heard of the hollow well, earth. So there's a film where they go they go through the middle of the earth, isn't yeah, it? There I, is. I love these. These are fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You need to write a book of all the all the conspiracy theories. But those birds definitely suspicious. I oh, know. Well, yeah, they are a bit, aren't they? But um, but yeah, they, they they are. Apparently, people believe they are surveillance devices uh, for an alien race. So well done, eight five. You've pulled one back for the guests. Um, Woohoo! Well done, well done. Congratulations. We're not we're not we don't feel bad at all. Um, anyway, Emma, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you. Uh, I still think it's one of the most important issues we've got uh, at the moment facing us. Uh, aside from obviously the direct things that are going on at the moment. Um, so thank you so much for joining us. We can find you on Twitter, can't we? Yes, I'm at reef underscore scientist. So yeah, feel free to ping me with like questions or anything reef related. I love just talking about reefs and all the amazing animals that you find on reefs. So Perfect. yes, 
Perfect. Get in we'll, touch. We'll, uh, we'll get that link in the description and we'll get a few other bits and pieces in the world. But for now, thank you very much, Emma. I really appreciate it. Um, next week, we have got Professor Dave. Professor Dave of uh, YouTube fame. He's coming on next week. Cats will be back. So we'll see you all then. Goodbye. Goodbye.